We'll begin reading today in, in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, of Pers the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah, so they troubled them in building. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. If you skip over to verse 23, at the end of the chapter, it says, Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was written, was, re was read excuse me, before Rehum Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. Thus, the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Second um, <clears throat> Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 12, uh, Paul says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly, in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. That's sort of a comprehensive statement. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so just sort of as a, an evaluation uh, this morning, I wonder how many of you would say that you are right now suffering persecution? How many churches in Surrey County or the surrounding area could say this morning that they are suffering persecution. I would say not many, if any. Now certainly Christians suffer and churches experience suffering, but to this point, at least in our own context, we have not to any degree much at all suffered persecution. So then we have to step back in light of a verse like 2 Timothy 3.12 and ask ourselves, why? Now, I'm not going to do like some people and pray for persecution. I heard somebody do that just this week and I sort of cringed at the thought of it. Nobody wants to experience persecution. In fact, we should use the, the freedoms, the liberty that we have, the, uh, the opportunities that are before us to preach the gospel, yes, and to, to go forth with it. But if we're not experiencing some measure of suffering or persecution, I think we do have to ask ourselves, are we truly, truly living godly lives that are obedient to all that God has commanded us? I sort of wonder if the reason that we don't experience more trouble than we are is because we're not really being all that forward uh, in our proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. Now, that's not to say go out and try to make people mad. Uh, we have enough people that do that. Uh, you don't have to go and find some guy in a, in a store or a random place and say, hey, you're a filthy, rotten sinner. You're going to hell and you better repent. 
you know, that's true, uh, but I don't recommend it as a, a, a method of evangelism. You're probably going to get punched, and I don't know that I'd call it persecution. Uh, that's just being mean. And so we, we, we need to sort of examine ourselves and see whether we truly are being faithful. And when we are faithful, we shouldn't be surprised when we do experience a measure of suffering. Ezra 3, we finished up last time, the chapter ended with this scene of rejoicing. Shouts of joy, singing, the rejoicing at the work of God. The foundation of the temple had been laid. God had brought his people back to the land just as he had promised, and they were thrilled. They had every reason to be excited and to sing to God for joy. And we can uh, be encouraged by that. But when we come to chapter 4, uh, all has been well, but now all the opposition, all the problems uh, seem to present themselves. They start to run into some trouble. And I think that the kinds of opposition that the Jews faced here in Ezra chapter 4 are indicative or maybe representative of the kinds of challenges, the kinds of opposition that God's people have always been at risk of facing and, and still face today. And so when we are faithful, don't be surprised when we face problems. When we are obedient, don't be surprised when we're opposed. When you're doing what God wants you to do, you will be persecuted to some degree. So what kinds of opposition may God's people face? We, I see four uh, things here in the passage, um, so we'll give you some headings here. Number one, um, contamination. Contamination. Verse 1, the chapter begins, it says, When the adversaries of Judah uh, and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said, Let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do. We've sacrificed to him. Now that sounds nice. To have somebody come to you seeing the work that you're doing for God. You're doing the work that God has called you to do. You're being faithful. And people come along and say, we want to help. We want to take part. We want to contribute. We worship your God too. Oh man, that sounds great. But Ezra in writing didn't give us a chance to think that. He began the verse by letting us know up front that they were what? Adversaries. They were enemies. You see, this offer to help might sound nice, but these people uh, aren't truly committed to the Lord as they say they are. They're Samaritans. You'll know that many years earlier, the, the northern tribes had been taken into captivity by Assyria. And they came back to, to re-inhabit the land. And these people, though they had some remnant of a Jewish heritage, they had some idea of the God of Israel, they feared Him to some degree. They had mixed with the people of Assyria. They had mixed with the idolatrous people around them. And so you go back to 2 Kings 17, you learn a little, more, a little bit more about them. But I think a good summarizing statement is in verse 33 of that chapter. It says, They feared the Lord yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. So they had just enough of the fear of God to be interested in the work that's going on here in Jerusalem. 
They had just enough of the fear of God that they didn't want to anger Him. They wanted to, uh, to give homage to Him and, and give tribute to Him and sacrifice to Him just enough to appease Him. But they didn't fear Him to the degree that they were willing to forsake their other gods and to forsake their idols. So they mixed that Jewish heritage with the idols of the nations around them. Their religion wasn't pure. Their hearts and their motives weren't pure. And, and their involvement in the construction of this temple, their involvement in God's work that's going on in Jerusalem, a holy work, would have contaminated it. Would have brought impurity into the work that God was doing. And that's really not a one-off situation. That's nothing new and it shouldn't be a new concept to you as a Christian today. Because we see even in Jesus' twelve and his disciples, only eleven of them stuck with him. Even among Jesus' closest followers, those, those original twelve disciples, one of them, Judas Iscariot, was a traitor. And when Jesus came at, at the Last Supper and he said, one of you will betray me, nobody stepped back and said, I bet it's Judas. They all looked around and said, who could it be? Lord, is it me? Will I betray you? It didn't occur to anyone that it might be him. He blended right in. As far as they knew, he was as faithful a disciple as anyone else. He, he was so trustworthy, he had a job. He kept the money back. He was their treasurer. Yet his motive in his heart was impure. Even in the early days of the church, you read in the book of Acts and get along to about chapter 5 and, and people are doing these, these great works. They're selling their property and they're taking their money to, to give it to the poor and to take care of the, the needy in the church. And, and many are doing these wonderful works. And then a couple comes along named Ananias and Sapphira. And, and they sell their property and that's fine. It's theirs to do with what they please. But they conspire among themselves or between themselves to come and to say that this is all the money, the total from the sale of the land that we're going to give to the Lord. And they kept some back. Now, the sin wasn't that they didn't give all the money. Again, it was theirs to do with what they wanted. The sin was that they lied to the Lord. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the church. And in those early days, God wanted the precedent to be set that His church would be a pure church. And when they came in and they lied to the Holy Spirit, they lied to the Lord, what did God do? He killed them. They fell down dead in the assembly of the gathered church. Husband and wife, because they, they brought impurity, they brought sin into God's holy work. Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable about wheat and tares. How that a farmer goes out and he sows his wheat and he goes to bed and while he's sleeping, an enemy comes along and sows tares among them. And it's not, real, not noticed until they start to grow up. And the workers say, well, what should we do? Should we go and, and, and pull up the tares and separate them from the wheat? And he says, no, just leave them be for now until the harvest and then we'll take up the tares first and bind them and burn them in the fire before we gather the wheat. And that's representative of what happens even in the church today. That even among God's people, the enemy sows tares. That even among God's holy work, when God is doing a good thing among His people, others will come in who are in, 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 uh, in arms with the enemy. 
whether they realize it or not, whether we see it at first or not, that among God's faithful, there are always, almost always, people among them who are unfaithful. I've shared my own testimony with you before. If you were here Wednesday night, we talked about it just then. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad's a preacher. Went to church three to five times a week, just depending. Memorized my Bible verses. Went to Christian school. Had a Bible lesson every single day of my childhood. Prayed a prayer when I was five. Was baptized. Joined the church. As far as everybody knew, I'm a Christian. Everything's fine. But what's really going on on the inside? I'm dead in my sins. Jesus spoke of those who on the outside were like whitewashed tombs. They were beautiful to the eyes of men, but inwardly were full of dead men's bones. And that was my condition. Until the day that God opened my eyes, He showed me my sin. He showed me my pride and my self-righteousness. And that the punishment, the wages for my sin was death, eternal death in the lake of fire. I remember that day thinking even of Ananias and Sapphira and being fully convinced that if I kept on living the lie I was living, that I was going to die. And whether I did or not, I know that my end would have been the lake of fire, would have been hell because of pride and self-righteousness. But God showed me mercy and he saved me. And now he's in the process of cleaning me from the inside. And I've got a long ways to go. Just spend some time with me, you'll see. But the Lord is at work. And that might be the condition of some of you. I believe God has given me a passion, a desire to see false converts come to truly know Christ. And maybe it's just because of my experience, but I'm concerned for church people. Church people who have been around it their whole lives, who have professed faith in Christ, they've been baptized, they've been, become members of the church, but inside they're still full of dead men's bones. As far as everybody else knows, they're Christians, they're fine, they live decent lives. But there's those secret sins, those secret lusts, those secret desires, that pride and self-righteousness that will send you to hell if you don't repent and put your faith in Jesus. It really wasn't where I intended this sermon to go this morning, but there it is. Maybe you need to hear it. Maybe you sit here lost and you know it. And God has shown you and you need to repent and put your faith in Jesus. You need to come to him and beg for mercy. That's what I had to do. With the devil and those who, through whom he works, they slip in unnoticed frequently enough. So when we do see sin and we do see sinful people who threaten to defile the Lord's work, what is the church to do? We have to take, have the courage to deal with it. What did Zerubbabel say? They said, you, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build the Lord, to the Lord God of Israel. You know, Paul told the Corinthians, he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we often uh, apply that to marriage, and we should. Christians should not marry non-Christians. Believers should not marry unbelievers. But that doesn't only apply to marriage. He says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? We can't just let anyone come in and take part in the Lord's work just because they say they like us, or because they agree with us. 
A lot of times churches have this, have this mentality that um, if somebody comes but they're not really faithful, we need to give them a job to do. And if we give them a job to do, we'll really anchor them in and they'll become faithful. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> That's not right. Watch the lives of the people around you. See who is faithful and see what kind of work the faithful can do to reach the unfaithful. Zerubbabel and, and the others here were right to reject their help because they knew that they were not truly motivated purely to do the work of God. So contamination is, is one form of opposition, one form or one risk that we face. The second is harassment. Verse 4 says, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. They hired counselors against them to frustrate all, their purpose all their days even to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You see, it's amazing how, how quickly they switch. When the enemies didn't get their way, that's when they showed their true colors. It's amazing how quickly they swung from, we want to help you, to, oh, we're going to try to do everything we can to stop you. That shows that their heart really wasn't in the work of the Lord in the first place. They went from offering to help with God's work to trying to tear it down. And what are their tactics here? We see discouragement. They hired counselors. They're perpetually trying to frustrate the, the work of the people. We, we saw that even in the life of Jesus. Jesus experienced harassment if, if no one else ever did. He was accused of being uh, born of fornication. You remember that? In, was it John 10? When Jesus says, you know, you, you need to think about what Abraham would do. Your fathers wouldn't be treating me this way. And they said, hey, we know who our father is. We weren't the ones born of fornication. Yeah, we heard about that virgin birth story. You expect us to believe that? He was called a glutton and a drunkard because he went to parties and ate food with people. He was called a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And for sinners, people recognize they're sinners. That sounds like a, a good news, but it was an insult. He was accused of being demon-possessed and working with Satan's power. You're casting out demons because you have the power of Satan. Yeah, that makes sense, guys. Good job. See, if we're faithful, we will likely experience harassment, discouragement, frustration. We hear insults from, from people in power, those who hate the law of God and the word of God and would love to see it stopped. Social media, the news, whatever you want to listen to or read, there's opposition all around and insults. You'll experience it personally, probably at work. Um, you'll have to watch some kind of uh, diversity or inclusion training that caricatures Christians, you know, and is an insult. You'll experience it in policies that are made that go against what you uh, believe that the Bible has said, that God has said in his word. You'll experience harassment and discouragement even from family, from friends. Even you who are in school, you'll experience it from peers. You'll experience rejection. You'll be excluded from activities. You may even be excluded at some point from opportunities, academic or otherwise, because you hold to what God has said in his word. But don't be surprised. 
you're in good company. You're being treated just like Jesus was treated. John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. We're just being treated like our Lord. Contamination, harassment, third, uh, we see some legal action. Look at verse 6 there. It says, in the, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes also, all these guys' names and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written in Aramaic, script and translated in the Aramaic language. And so the, the letters were written, and we don't know how many letters were written, but he sort of gives us a, a sample of one. Uh, here, it begins down in verse 11. It says, this is a copy of the letter they sent. It says, to King Artaxerxes, from your servants. So I'm kind of lifting them up. We're your servants. We're, we're your faithful ones, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city. Just go ahead and throw them under the bus right away. And are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Well, they really know how to get to the heart of a politician. Threaten his wallet. Now listen, if these guys finish their city, if they finish their walls, they're not going to pay taxes to you. Oh man, I bet that perked the king's ears up. Right away. Now, because, verse 14, we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we've sent and informed the king. If, if you don't stop these, you're not just going to lose money, but you're going to be dishonored. You're not going to have the respect that you deserve as a king. Verse 15, that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You'll find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So you're going to lose money, you're going to lose respect, and you're going to lose land unless you do something about these guys building the city. And, and, and it would be that they would throw just enough truth in there uh, to make their case sound reasonable. So the king sends an answer to verse 17, to Ram the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. I gave command, and search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have, fostered it, have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, then tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me, take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? That's to be the expected response. You tell a king who's in a faraway land, he can't really see what's going on anyway, that he's going to lose money and respect and land and power because of these people, what they're doing. There's really nothing in him that would make him say, well, you know, that's really no big deal. I've got enough money coming in anyway. I've got enough land the people around here like me well enough. Just let them do what they want. No, of course he didn't say that. 
So this action has been taken and he's, he's ordered them to stop building. Stop these people from building. Remember that it was through the legal system of the day that Jesus was condemned to death. It's nothing new for people to use the laws that, that are around and the systems that are in place to try to do harm to the work of God. Jesus was arrested, turned over to the authorities, questioned, tried, and convicted, even if unfairly, that he would be crucified, a government-endorsed execution. He was put to death. And in Western civilization, we're starting to see more and more of this. It hasn't really hit home in Surrey County yet. But just recently, you know, I've read of twice that people in England have been arrested for praying silently in public. Praying silently in public. Not standing on a street corner shouting at people, telling them to repent. But by standing in a, in a public area quietly. And when asked what they were doing, they admitted that they were praying. And they were arrested. Because that's illegal. You can't do that in this, in this space. I mean, how many lawsuits have we seen over cake baking and picture taking? I mean, they just, they're endless. Efforts to require uh, the recognition of unbiblical marriage in Christian institutions, religious institutions, abound. And those efforts won't stop. Maybe for a little while the churches have the protections to, to push back against that and to be exempt from those things, but the Christian schools, the universities, the seminaries, those people are under threat right now. Because of legal action, legislation that's being brought forth. The enemy will stop at nothing to try to, to kill God's work and cause it to cease. But as I said before, we're in good company. It's, it's new to us because we've had it so good in America for so long. We still have it great. So when we hear about these things, some anxiety arises. But I just want to remind you, you're in good company. It's how Jesus was treated. It's how the apostles were treated. It's how generations of Christians before us have been treated. And how people across the world are treated right now for the sake of the gospel. This is nothing new. It just is to us. The fourth comes as far as physical force. Contamination, harassment, legal action, and physical force. Verse 23 says, Now when the copy of, the, of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Ram, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. And thus the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem ceased. It was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they get the king's letter. All right, boys, this is what we've been waiting for. Get your sword. We're putting a stop to this today. And they did. The work of God on the temple ceased. It looked like it was a loss. A defeat for the work of God in Jerusalem. 
If that was the end of the story, it would be a loss. There have been years in the history of the church when it appeared that the lights were out. When it seemed like the work of God had been stopped by the violence of evil men. There have been kings and authorities and powers who have killed Christians to the degree that as far as the eye could see, the work of God had stopped. And there was nothing going on in their day. A couple of prophets who were um, active during this time, those who spoke for God, were Haggai and Zechariah. Hear this word that, that Zechariah spoke during this time. It's in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. You should recognize the name Zerubbabel. He's the guy in charge here in Ezra. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. You think Zerubbabel was facing a mountain when the work stopped in Jerusalem? Absolutely. God says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. You see this mountain, it's going to become a plain. He shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Verse 8 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. We know that's true. We've read it. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now I bet that when all this is going on in Jerusalem, when Zerubbabel heard, hears the words of the prophet, the word of God through the prophet, that God has said, the work that he started by your hands, he will complete it. Oh, that was an encouragement. That would have given him courage in this time of darkness, this time when the work had ceased. And let me tell you something. This is what God's word says. He says that the work that the Lord has begun in you, he will bring it to completion. There are times when it gets dark. There are times when you face mountains. There are times maybe even when the world comes against you, it may come as far as physical force someday. It's not unreasonable to think that at some point there could be someone standing at the door of our church with a weapon keeping us from gathering here for worship. That would be a dark day. But even should a day like that come, we can be assured that the work that God has started in this church, that the work that God has started in your life, He will bring it to completion. God will accomplish His purposes. Dark days may indeed come again. God was determined to accomplish His work through these people. He didn't send them there to fail. Chapters 5 and 6 will, will show yet again that even when it looks like evil is winning, that God always proves himself sovereign and faithful. And so you have to come back next week to hear that. 
But until we come back to those chapters, let me just leave you with three statements for application. Here we go. Three things. Number one, opposition doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. It probably means you're doing something right. If you're trying to be obedient to the Word of God, to do what He has commanded, and you face opposition, something comes against you, whether that's physical, whether it's a person you know, maybe it's spiritual. Whatever opposition you face, when you see that, don't step back and say, man, I must be messing up. Actually, consider that you might just be on the right track. Because if we're faithful, if we do what God's commanded us to do, we will be opposed. So that's the first thing. Second, our objective isn't to overcome our enemies, but to simply be faithful to God. Now, it might have been tempting for Zerubbabel and all these guys to take up arms and go after them right then on the spot. We'll take you out and we'll march up to the king and tell him what we think. That wasn't their job. God had sent them there to build a temple, to rebuild a city, to establish worship to Yahweh. God has given us work to do. He's called us to preach the gospel, to love Him most of all, to love others, to make disciples, and we are to do those things. It's not our job to try to, to, to sway the government to do what we think they ought to do. You can do part. You can, you can vote. You can protest. Do all that. That's fine. But that's not the work God's called the church to do. Our job is not to try to get, uh, get people in power. Our job is not to try to get things to go our way in society. Our job is to love God, to love others, and to make disciples. And that's where our focus should be. Our job, our objective is not to overcome our enemies, but to simply be faithful to God. Let God deal with our enemies. And third, regardless of apparent defeats in the present, God will accomplish His purposes. When it looks like things are not going our way, when it looks like the church is in trouble, I want to assure you that God has an eternal plan and He will complete it. He will complete it. He will do everything He said He would do. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. How can we be encouraged? You tell us about all the problems we might face. Well, you can come to those things because it's through them that God has chosen to work. God will show Himself faithful over and over again just like He always has in the past. This, the chorus to this, the hymn goes, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him over and over. Then it says, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. God's proven Himself in the past, and now we just need to have the grace and the patience to see Him carry us through whatever comes in the future. Let's stand and pray. Our God, You are faithful. Your word is true. Your plans are set. You will fulfill all your promises. Give us grace to trust you. Give us endurance and perseverance when we face trials of various kinds. Give us joy even in those things because we know to whom we belong. And we know who the victor is in the end, regardless of what things look like today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.